When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks coming to Del Mar, California, October 8th and 9th. And this year honoring in our icons of foam, Mr. Timmy Patterson. A celebration of the surfboard, the philosophical icon of enduring youth. Everybody loves surfboards and everyone enjoys the Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks. For more information, visit boardroomshow.com. An iconic surfboard shaper to champion surfers and the local crew as well. A renowned big wave surfer, a world traveler, a big wave contest promoter and judge. Yes, Gary Linden is all of these things. But of course, labels never really do justice. And frankly, that's why we have these long-form discussions to dig a little deeper. I've always viewed Gary Linden as a doer. He gets stuff done. Currently a proponent of the agave stock as a surfboard blank and gearing up to produce another big wave event at his beloved Todos Santos Island off the coast of Ensenada. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Gary Linden. Let us begin. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. This is legendary surfer and shaper Gary Linden. Gary, thanks for being with us here this morning. It's a real treat. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, as you may know, I, I sometimes start these interviews off with sort of a silly question. But And last time I spoke to you, I asked you the last place that you danced. I don't know if you remember that or not. I, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> but no, I'm, not, I'm changing it up on you, though. So I want to know when was the last sporting event that you attended? Oh, geez. Must have been the Padres game before, uh, before COVID. Yeah. Wow. That was a long 2019 or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Probably. Are you a, are you a Padres fan? Big time since 1954. Wow. <laughs> That's right. You're old school. You're like Nate Colbert and shit like that. Dude, I remember, so my dad worked at the county, so right, and uh, Lane Field was right next door, right there at the port, and we, I remember going to see Rocky Calavito, which was a center fielder for, uh, later for the Cleveland Indians, which Padres were the farm team for that, but he'd go out, stand behind the fence at center field, and throw a strike to home plate. Wow, how cool is that? Yeah, I just, I just found it. I went through my old baseball cards, too. I found a old Rocky Colorado on the Indians, man. Killer. You are, that is, like, I don't think I've ever met, well, and I've met a lot of Padre fans, but I've never met such a long-term Padre fan as you since 1954. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it's pretty. It's a long time. They should give you free season tickets, man. You should be up on the big jumbo screen there. I'm, I'm going to talk to Manny when I get to meet him here. So, well, I know then you must be excited with the way we're playing right now. I mean, it's been incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? Manny Machado is my favorite player, and you know he's just been killing it. So MVP. He's been insane. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, look, what are you doing to stay in shape? I think you're, what, 71 or 72 years old? I'm 72, yeah. Well, I just try and surf every day if I can. And I, I you know, I don't, I don't stay on schedule. I don't make it every day. But if it was a little warmer, I would. <laughs> but I try and go out regardless and, you know, beach break out back. And then uh, I, I took up yoga about four years ago. That's helping me a lot, too. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Yeah, yoga's yoga's important, right? If we stick with it. I have a problem sticking with it. You know, I had trouble because I started late and I have a bad hip. But I found this like gentle yoga class where it's like for older people. And it's just a bunch of old ladies. And, you know, like I look pretty good, you know. Oh, yes, you do. I might have to sign up for the old lady class. That sounds uh, that sounds like a strategy. Yeah, yeah it was, it's it, but some, you know, at first I was getting shown up by some 80 year old um, senior citizen. But sure. but I, I do good on the balances. But on some of the other ones, I'm, I'm not quite in there. But, you know, the thing is, is just being comfortable and, and learning that you're probably when you start this late, you're never going to be really any good at it yeah but but being good at it is getting better than you were and, yeah. and staying stay a little flexible and that, that's kind of the lesson in life you know just like we, when we're young we want to be the best in the whole world at whatever it is but then you get older you want just it's good to be the best you can be the best yeah. version of you you know so you're you're only doing surfing and yoga and you're you're not when you do yoga, are you doing, uh, are there some core exercises? Are you strengthening your stomach or? No, I haven't. I haven't. I, I, I got a line on a personal trainer uh, last week and I'm going to contact him, try and get a little stronger. Okay, so. cool. Is this a concern of yours? Cause it's a concern of mine and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you are and, <laughs> and, and I see you and I'm inspired by you because I know you're always in the water. Um, do you, in the back of your mind, or are you like, man, this thing, this surfing thing is like, how much longer can I do this? Uh, every day, you know, like uh, every day I worry about it. Like I was getting in really, really good shape um, right before the pandemic. Then we had the best winter ever. And my family didn't want me to go to Mexico. So I missed Toto's. And that was the first year I missed it. And then I, I haven't really you know, I haven't really gotten back. And, uh, and then I had uh, fractured my skull last August in the big island when I hit the reef and oh, yeah, I almost died. I, what uh, happened? Uh, I was on family vacation and to the big island and it was 10 days in the van with six of us with the surfboard down the middle. And, you know, I didn't get to surf, you know, so the last day we were in, uh, we were in Kona and, and we were in walking distance to these little reef breaks right out front. And there's one called Hunnels. And I didn't know it was a bodyboard spot, you know, and I paddled out and uh, there's a south swell coming. I, first wave I caught, I, I made it. 
and it was just dry reef and i'm going boy this is sketchy i should, probably shouldn't be surfing here there's a few bodyboarders out yeah. I figured, well, i'm gonna sit because usually i i gotta get three waves that's a session for me if i don't yeah. catch three waves on a session so i said well, i'm gonna sit out on the shoulder and just stand up a couple more times and go in and uh it was a south swell coming up and it was pushing me over the reef you know, and I just wait for a good one, wait for a good one. And then I got, you know, that point where you get, you know, oh, I'm just going to go, you know. Yeah. Try to catch this one. And I just, all I can remember is seeing dry reef below me. And uh, that was the last I can remember. And I woke up in the, in the ambulance. You know, I, oh I guess I, I was in underwater for a minute. I got pulled out. There was an off-duty uh, lifeguard who was bodyboarding out there. And he pulled me out. Wow. It was pretty gnarly. He said he flipped me over, you know, and uh, pat, you know, hit the hitch on the chest. And I go, uh, I'm all right. And then he asked me my name. I went, Gary Linden. And then, and then I don't remember any of it. And I was like having an outer body experience. I knew something was happening. Yeah. But I didn't remember it. Then I woke up in the, in the ambulance and it was like I came out of this gnarly deep sleep. You know, I didn't know where I was or anything. Then I passed out to the hospital again. When when you recall, if you can, the the deep sleep, the state that you were in, do you do, is there a vision or like any anything that that you remember of that? Like, were there deep dreams or was it just? A... It was like really being a, in a deep dream, but you knew something was happening, but you didn't know what it really was. Like I knew something was happening. Yeah. But I wasn't there. Yeah. Was it? I've heard it described as like the black and white fuzz on an old black and white TV when it's, there's no channel. It's just like that. Was, did, did you experience I, I that? Know. I think there's different depths for everybody. Yeah. You know, and I, I wasn't so it wasn't like I was in this tunnel and, you know, I saw the light and all that that I was yeah. dying or anything. I mm-hmm. just. I wasn't out. Like yeah. right when I hit, it's like that's when I, one th- the one message I want to give to anybody is, if you die like that, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> okay, good you enough. Don't thing. <laughs> when but, you woke up, were there people on top of you with oxygen masks, kind of hovering over you? Not, yeah, not oxygen masks, but just like I woke up in the ambulance on the beach, you know, and they're going, you know, who are you or what's your name? And, you know, yeah, but. But when I was in that state, like I've been underwater at Pasquale's where I was like, I'd, I'd gotten hit on the head and I was I'd semi-conscious. Yeah. Just, I could remember going, wow, that's pretty, pretty weird. You know, I could, I, I could feel it. Yeah. And this was one step beyond that. Oh, wow. <clears throat> okay. This is where I, I, I was just in my mind, but mm-hmm. I wasn't in my body. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy crazy and, and you fractured your skull yeah were there stitches or anything like that dude it was so many stitches like there's inside stitches you know i like my like it's was fractured it wasn't they didn't have to pull my skull out so it's just a little bit off but yeah. with all the stitches inside then there was exterior to, to to stitch the skin back down and then staples and stuff it's like Wow. I had a I had a killer surgeon in emergency room. He's like such a cowboy man. He comes in and he goes, I'm 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 the he's going, 
you know, the first thing about surfing is you're, you're supposed to stay on your board. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he goes, you know, you probably broke your neck too. We better go. We have probably, I'm going, shoot, but where's the bedside matter guy, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, and then he's like telling me all these killer stories and, you know, all this, you know, it was really cool. And it, it really, you felt confident. This is a guy you want stitching you back up. Yeah. And yeah. then he's going, you know, I was like, okay, I got to give you some staples. And he goes, yeah, you know, staples is probably almost better without the uh, anesthetic. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. And, but by then, <laughs> I had the anesthetic. And then he's cleaning it all. And he goes, oh, I missed a spot. And he just goes, boom, and ha- zaps me with the, with the staple gun. And I go, hey, dude, you're right. You know? Wow. It hurts more getting the anesthetic than it does getting the staple. Oh, so interesting. One and done, and you're out of there, you know? Yeah. And hurt. Wow, I, that's that's quite an experience. I had never heard of this story, and I see you, you know, at least once a year. But, um, wow, well, I'm glad you're better. Um, let's get – Can I um, put one more thing on there? Because it's pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. So, so I'm pretty good friends with Tom Mori, like my first – Second custom board was I, I ordered from him up in Ventura. So I've known him since I was about 14. And then he worked next door in his later years making the swizzle and everything. So he called me, heard about my accident, and he called me. And uh, he said, you know, Gary, that was, uh, that was where I invented the bodyboard. It was too, too shallow for fins. And this oh. was about two weeks before he died. Uh-huh. And he started telling me about how he was – preparing for surfing in his mind and that he was riding these waves and uh in his mind he said it's so killer gary you don't you don't need your body anymore you know you just take off on these insane waves and and just ride them and and did how did you take that did you i i told him as a gift from my old friend that was just one step beyond where I was and where I'd almost been. Yeah. You know, it was really, really comforting. Yeah. Very comforting. Yeah. Very comforting and, and very um, special moment for me. Yeah. Because he was such a, a visionary. Yeah. And if, and if he could do it, I, I believe him. Do you have a belief in a deity? I, I don't I don't believe in like uh there's one there's one you know uh man up there that's our father you know god yeah. Stuff, yeah. but I believe in a d- divine spirit yeah and, you know I, I don't you know I I believe there's something beyond right we're we're going to come back and that they're, they're you know we're we're a soul and everything yeah. and it, and but I I I believe in the, I said, I was a religious studies major in, in college. Oh, wow. And, and I, and I believe in, uh, you know, my, the closest thing to religion is Buddhism that I, you know, follow. Right. Well, Buddhism is a religion, isn't it? Well, it's a religion, but it's more of it's like my favorite class was, I was taught uh, Buddhism by, it was a, a Buddhist priest and also a doctor at Union psychology so it had a way of uh, relating to Western man, Eastern thought. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just more, uh, uh, 
it's more on how to how to live it's not like a religion right I don't, I don't. right it's not like sort of the standard western you know um like you say like santa claus in the sky that's kind of going do this or else yeah yeah it's a little bit more broad and yeah, it's just like the way to enlightenment is nothingness, you know? It's like, so stay in the middle, the middle path, you know? Just stay in the middle. Don't go to the extremes. Don't go oh. low tide. Don't go high tide on us. It's just, you know. Well, I would suggest that you've gone to extremes with your surfing. I mean, you're a guy that you just mentioned Pasquale's. You were, I bet you were probably over 50 when you were surfing Pasquale's, which is a no-no. How old were you when you were surfing? Like, the, I, I stopped surfing Pasquale's, you know, paddling. Um, you know, when I was 35, how old were you when you were getting wiped out at Pasquale's? Oh, probably 55 or 50, something like that. Those are extremes, Gary. No, I, I, I know, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't always follow my, what I say. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to, you know, whatever I, whatever I do is what I, what I do. You know, I just, if I, I mean, I give a lot of advice because, you know, my dad told me a lot of stuff, but he never told me why, you know. So I try and <laughs> tell young people why, you know, yeah. and you make your own decision. But I don't want well, to you to do it. You mentioned early times in San Diego and your, and college, too. So I know you grew up here, I believe. Um, what did your father do for work? Well, he was a he was a lieutenant colonel in the in the army, and then he worked for the county of San Diego as what is a training director. And so, what his job was to was to make sure the different areas in the county all functioned because we didn't have a internet or anything. So he had to go to Oceanside and to La Mesa and all the places in the county, make sure they're following protocol and seeing if they needed any help and to be the most efficient. Um, Person. You, you grew up in San Diego. Yeah, grew up in Claremont. Right. Yeah. And, and where did you go to high school? I went to Madison. Madison High School. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember your story because you've told it to me before, but at some point you got involved in surfing. And how did that occur? Did, did you have brothers that took you to the beach or how did, how did your introduction to the ocean go down? Well, I, I had a really bad asthma when I was a kid. We, I was born in El Centro, and my dad got us out of there when I was three because of pesticides and all the spraying that they were doing. It's just like killing me. Yeah. And plus, he grew up on the beach in Hermosa Beach when, when it was the last stop on the, the train of the city. So there's just nothing but sand dunes and stuff. So he grew up around the ocean, but he didn't serve. So the, we had this doctor, and the doctor goes, well, the only thing we can do, I can do for you for asthma is take him to the ocean, you know, and get the salt water. And my dad was just going, yeah, buddy, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so every weekend we go to the beach and, you know, I learned to, to, to swim. And I was about seven or so. I had swimming lessons, but I learned to body surf and how to surf on a mat and everything. And then when I was 12, um, I went to a, a 4th of July uh, picnic up in Carlsbad and they had a surfboard and I got to ride it, you know, and I just, I remember, you know, catching a wave. There was no surfing lessons. Nobody taught you how to stand up, but, you know, I caught this foam and I got ride and I just went, this is insane. So that, that summer I, 
I uh, had a paper route and it was like an independent paper route where the, you had to volunteer pay, you know, like you deliver the paper and then you'd go and go, Hey, can you pay me for the paper? And <laughs> I went from two customers to, to 50 and I made 20 bucks one month and that 20 bucks, I bought an old used balsa with surfboard. My dad and I fixed it up and, you know, I started surfing on it. What do you remember about that old board? You said old balsa, and I know you and I both, my ears were peaked up a little bit there. Was it Valsy Jacobs or anything like that? Or it, it, I think it was like, you know, in those days it was, that was 62. And it was like an eight foot board, which was like, a you know, a, not very wide. It was, if it was 20 inches wide, I would have been surprised. Yeah. And it was like a double ender, weighed about 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish to the day I had the board, but it weighed yeah. so much. I weighed 80 and the board weighed 40. I had to drag it down the beach. Yeah. Harder than heck to learn to surf on. It took me about six months before I could stand up and turn both ways, you know. But yeah, yeah it, was, it, it, it endeared me, you know, to, to wood surfboards. I mean, I don't know what happened, but yeah, I think that's, just, that's what happened. Yeah, you know, it's, I just had a vision of you. Building a double ender for yourself, an agave double ender. I can see this happening. You're going to go full circle here. Oh, I've been full circle. I'm, I'm on the second rotation. I'm going counterclockwise now. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did you begin tinkering with uh, shaping surfboards? Well, I got to say with that first board, because it was just so beat up. And my dad didn't know about fiberglass and resin and stuff. Neither did I. But then I, that's when I, I started, you know, working with it. I started making custom laminated skateboards and fiberglassing them and everything and being the ding repair guy for my local crew. And then, and then about um, when I was about 17, eight, 18, then um, uh, Bob McTavish, the Winnessy Surf Club went to, to Australia and Skip Fry got a Bob McTavish eight foot plastic, fantastic machine. He yeah. brought it back. And all the guys in the club got to try it. Yeah. And then uh, Skip made one and he loaned it to Marty Fitch. And then I got that board and I, I got a blank from um, uh, Eli Miranda from La Jolla, um, Surfboards La Jolla. Because you oh, could um, fix in those days. Yeah. Eli's dad, right? Um yeah, no, not Eli. Uh, yeah. Um, Miranda's Bear, yeah, Bear, Bear. Bear's brother, Nick. Yeah. Nick or Bear. Yeah. Bear is Bear. And uh, so I got a blank. He sold me one out the back door because you couldn't buy blanks in those days. And I shaped a board and I traded that for a brand because it was nobody, you didn't have shortboards. An eight foot board was a shortboard. So yeah. I traded it for a, a brand new Rick Barry Kanayapuni three stringer. Wow. Which I turned around and sold for. 120 bucks and then got some phosphone rejects and took off, you know, started building boards. And what was your, do you remember some of those first boards? Oh yeah. Yeah. We just went, we went down. Tony Chan uh, let me use um, a diff shaping room and uh, I rented a power planer from the tool place. And was this in Del Mar? Yeah, 15th Street. And, yeah, where Jake Stelmar is now. Yeah, and I got uh, I got to use Jeff's shaping room and his templates and stuff, and I just went shorter. I think we made a couple seven-foot boards. 
And uh, did you feel, did you have a sense of, were you too young to understand that you were in diff shaping room or were you kind of like, Oh my God, I'm in diff shaping room. Like, was there any of that? Yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah. I grew up in PV, you know, diff was a man, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Was, you know, top of the heat, you know, get to go to disc shaping room. was like insane. And did yeah. Tony charge you to use the room? No, no. But, but it sounds like he would have. But. It does. I can see him going, Hey kid, diff's not around. 50 bucks and you're in there for two hours or whatever. Oh, he and Bill Bain, you know, ran that, you know, that was their place. And it was, yeah. it wasn't like, you know, when he was, went up on the hill. Right. Right. It was on Mallory. Yeah. It was, there was a, there was a guy that slept in there grubby and he watched, he was like the guy who watched the place and stuff. It, it you was, mean, was it grub from Cardiff? Yeah. Grub from Cardiff. He yeah. used to work fishing boats with Stan Lewis. I, I don't know, but it was yeah. it wasn't grub, it was grub, it was grubs. Grub, yeah. Live in there. Oh wow. He had polio, right? Grub had a little yeah. polio. Yeah. yeah. Um okay, so tell me some more about your early surfboard building influences. You've mentioned in some ways Tony Channon was an influence, whether he knows it or not. Um, who else? Well, you know, Skip Fry, we we and Mike Hinson, those were the guys that we we looked up to, you know, we wanted yeah. to we wanted to surf like Skip and shape like Hinson, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, and he, you know, I, I just went on my own there because there wasn't too much to follow, like the V bottoms and stuff. So, yeah, the big influence was Bob McTavish, too. You know, yeah. Dick Brewer didn't, didn't get into San Diego that much. So, we, yeah. we didn't get much of that. We didn't get much of that. We didn't get. Like we didn't get much of Donald's boards from, from uh, Nueva. That was all LA guys. And you know, the freeway was one oh one. It was not it was not a freeway. So going to LA was a big deal. So yeah. it's kinda right. We were surfing the reefs around San Diego. So we weren't nose riders so much. We were all on the red fin, you know, mm-hmm. beach break stuff like um, those guys. And so I went to to college at UCSB. Okay. And when I got up there, I started, you know, uh, you know, the influence from indirectly from, from Rennie Yader and, and just riding Rincon all the time. And, um, uh, Chris, you were, you were riding your own boards up at Rincon in Santa Barbara. Yeah. 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 Um, my first one, I went up, I, I got Bruce Jones to shape me a board and I had a, did I glass and then, uh, I went to Australia the first summer between semesters, spent three weeks over there. And I, I got to, I got to, Greg, Greg Clough who made Aloha. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't shaping at the time, but he, Ronnie Woodward was the shaper. So Ronnie and Greg and the Glasser, and I got to share a house with those guys in Calounder, which is where Bob McTavish used to have his company called cord surfboards and this yeah. old and they were, we were making uh i forget what the name of it was but yeah. one day one night we were right we were all about surfing noosa and one one time there was an eight foot swell and witzig uh wayne lynch and bob mctavish came up just to, to surf the swell and i got to watch bob shape a board for um wayne lynch and that was such a huge influence on me. 
because uh, it was just the shortboards were just the shortboards were starting to happen. And Bob would have you stand up, put a blank up on the wall and have you stand up like this with your arms over your head. And he'd trace the outline for your board. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Hey, I can't hear you though. Can you can you speak up or did you turn off your now? Yeah, now I got you. Okay. Well, you were... I was telling you about so he Bob yeah. would, would uh have you stand up and draw your outline, but what it really we didn't use leaders in those days. Now today we got computer shaping and leaders, which is absolutely killer. But in the old days you had to fit somebody's body shape to your model. Yeah. That's why a custom board was so important. Now you don't need a custom board so much. You go, oh, I use 52 liters or I use 26 liters and you can, and it varies from the model. So it doesn't matter what the board looks like. You know, it's going to fit you by the number of liters. But in those days you didn't, you had to be like a circus guesser. Well, you weigh about 152 and you're, you're five, six. So you're going to, I need to make it 21 by two and a half and you know, whatever. But yeah, that stuck with me. So I was always able to really, I think, do a good job with custom boards because I could gauge a person's body and, and know what I was doing, what it was supposed to do on the surface. Well, you had three years of college still in front of you. Was this a place, a time where you were like, holy shit, Bob McTavish, I, I think I want to do this for a living. I want to build surfboards for a living. Was, was this something going through your head as uh, going into a sophomore year in college? No, I went back to school and uh, that was 1969. And then uh, right there in 70 in the spring with the riots, you know, the Vietnam. And I went surf El Cap, came back, ah, oh, stoked, you know, going down the uh, uh, Isla Vista where I lived. And the Bank of America was burning and there was police cars turned over and they killed a student. There was big time, you know, martial law. There was a there was a like a mini war that night where, you know, police came in and Molotov cocktails and rocks and you know it was just crazy right where I lived and they had martial law for the the last quarter of school and um I I went and rented this little barn that they had a little shaping thing in it so classes were all kind of canceled so I started making boards and then I I didn't go back after that I quit school wow amazing so in a weird way, the Vietnam War had an indirect effect on the outcome of your life. I think it affected everybody that was my age and theory. Yeah. Um, well, at some point you got you found your way to Brazil. How did that go down? And where are we in your timeline refer, regarding that? Didn't well, you go to South America right away? No, not not right away. Um, see, the first well, I quit school. And uh, and I was just working at home and surfing. And my mom told me, she said, uh, well, if you're not going to go to school, you're going to travel and get your education on the road. Wow, and, that's cool. And yeah, it's just like my doctor telling my dad to take me to the beach. It's like <laughs> all this stuff going like, oh, twist my arm. Don't throw yeah. me. You know? <laughs> Don't really do that. Just anything. And, and uh, so I went to to uh i was gonna i was gonna immigrate to to australia and i got all my immigration papers and everything like that and uh and i i decided well i'm gonna get uh, a freighter from panama 
And so a friend of mine decided we were going to go through Mexico and, and Central America by bus and, you know, and, um, and then he was going to come back and we got to El Salvador and, you know, we had a pretty good time. And, and then we decided, no, man, this is crazy. I'm not going to Nicaragua. Like it was a war in El Salvador with Honduras yeah. and it was pretty nuts. So we, we came back and um, spent about a month in Punta de Mita, you know, and then came, then came back three months. I came back and I went, okay, that's that trip. And then, then, uh, then I went to France and I spent a month, two months in France, drove to um, Portugal, spent a month in Portugal where my friend and I were the only surfers in Portugal, wow. a month in Erde Serra, fire spells, man. Like it was stupid cool. Yeah. My, my friend went to, with my two friends went to Morocco and I decided to go to the Canary Islands. So I got on a, on a barge with my van and got out there and spent a month in the Grand Canary surfing. Just yeah. Not too many yeah. people out there. No, it was pretty crazy. There's there was a, a place called uh, Confital, mm-hmm. and then the outside that was like like probably like third dip, just a slab on the like on the west side. Yeah, and there was a place like Cayena Point, you know, where oh. these huge waves were coming in. Did you know, with no cords and everything in those days. And stuff. Yeah. Anyway, I decided, you know what, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to school. You know, I'm going to go back to school. That's a trade route. Like the, the, the trade winds blow from the Canary Islands and then they go right to Florida. So yeah. I went down to the, the harbor and every day try to get on a, on a sailboat. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, no, nobody's taking any crew. And then this old 1936 double ender wooden boat. And the captain was English and he goes, yeah, I'm going to Brazil. And I, I'll take you. Oh, I need a crew. You know, <laughs> and is this like a like a um, like a like a schooner, like a topsail schooner or something like that? Like no wenches? Was it all pulled by block and tackle? Oh yeah, it was a, it was nice wood it, ship, tall ship. It no, it was a wooden, thirty foot long. Yeah, it pretty a, short. Yes, that's a it's a small small sailboat. Right. Okay. Double lender Norwegian stern built nineteen thirty six. Okay. One mask, one right. mask, main mask, and. uh and there's this Canadian guy about my age, and he came on too. And um, and the, and so we left in the we left, and, and we were on the lee of the island. Yeah. And I'd sold my van for two hundred bucks, and gave him the hundred twenty for food and stuff, and drove over there. And the swell was pumping on the other side. Yeah. And I got over the lee of the island. There was no swell, and he didn't know. He was a really good sailor. Yeah. He, phenomenal with the sails and everything but he'd done only coastal sailing he didn't he didn't know blue water sailing at all or currents or anything so we get out we leave at midnight we're motoring along as soon as we get out past the lee of the island we hit force nine winds winds reef the sails yeah we took (laughs) the sail it's like crazy you know and and uh he's taking down the sail put and he's on the 
the mast or, or the boom. And I didn't know anything about sailing. He's going to, you know, loosen it and I you know, tighten up the, the thing and I loosened it. And so all of a sudden he's swinging over. Holy shit. Almost losing our captain. Oh my God. And, then, and when I finally get it in, we put the thing up and I'm just like, we broke a spreader before we, before, before we got. Oh my God. You know, it was just like crazy. So the motor wouldn't work. So we, we limped into the Cabo Verdes, which is a, like about after yeah. a week. With I've been there. I've actually been to Canaries and Cabo Verde and yeah. sailed across the Atlantic myself. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So so you know what we're going through. Yeah, and there's good waves there too, by the way. I remember seeing great waves when we were sailing into and around Cabo. Yeah. Yeah, I we we I tried walking to the other side of the island to see the waves, but we, but we couldn't find any. But there's 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 an insane wave. Yeah. It looked like lowers were the one that I saw. I remember going, wow. Cobblestones. There's a better one. I bet. Yeah, I don't. I some of my friends have told me there's a better one, and and you've seen pictures of it, but yeah. it doesn't say where it is. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we stayed there for a week and ate off our stores instead oh, of no. the land because we thought, well, we're going to get right across, you know, and then. We, uh, the captain was afraid of hitting Fernando de Noronha and the reefs off of northern Brazil. So we got, he hugged the coast of, of Africa so that we got stuck in the doldrums. So we didn't, oh, no. so you pick up the northern, and you go like this, you know, and you go like that. Yeah. We got stuck in the doldrums for two weeks. We didn't have a motor. We ran out of food and we were just like throwing the sails up. You get a squall at noon, you know, and we'd run in front of the squall, <laughs> throw the sails up and catch the water. And, and that was our drinking water. And we had like a little bowl of rice in the day and then took, took it in about just two weeks of that in the dome. Yeah. Just like going, oh, that's crazy. I'm going to die. You know, that's super gnarly. We're going to die. And uh, that is so crazy, man. I we had like three days with no wind, and I can't imagine two weeks. That would just be brutal. Yeah, and a, it, no it, end in sight. No end in sight. We had yeah. no radio. We had a a a fourteen dollar Timex watch, an AM radio, and a broken sextant, plastic sextant that that we had to take the mirror out of the compact from the wife of the captain's wife. To, she, she was on board too. Yeah. And she didn't there's, sail. There's four of you. There was four of us. And it was, was a small boat. It was, it was gnarly. Dude. It was so gnarly because you know, women, you know, what? You know. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you better not say anything. No, I mean, you, you, you know, you know, women, I mean, she didn't sail, and there was four, three men, or yeah. two boys and a man, right? right. I twenty years, so one years old, you know. Yeah. And she couldn't handle it. Yeah. It just went, you know. Did she go crazy? She, she went pretty crazy. Just <laughs> would go off on us and stuff, and. Oh my god! This sounds like a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was like, like it was. I, I, I'm thinking, going. This is like the worst acid trip I've ever been on. <laughs> And I had to handle it like that. Yeah. So I had, I started to handle it like, okay, just stay calm. Yeah. And, and then one night 
we're out in the middle of the middle of the ocean, middle of the Atlantic, and it was just pure glass. Yep. And it was just so calm. And I can remember just going, okay, if I die, I had a pretty good run. <laughs> 21 years old. 20, 21. <laughs> you know, 22. I just turned 22. But this is pretty cool. How about the starry nights? Yeah, it was just starry and glassy. And I just went, if I die, well, that's, I can't do anything about it. But look at this. You know, nice. I got to enjoy every day. Right now, I'm not dead. I'm still alive. And I and that people people have asked me later, going, hey, well, you know, how could you how could you paddle out and ride big waves? I go, dude, I've been I've been out in twenty foot waves and not been able to see. I can swim to shore here. You know, exactly. And, and I what and I and I wasn't afraid of dying anymore after that. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that trip like just totally changed my my life, and I got to Brazil, and you know we we got a first thing to have a a beer or an ice cream, and I go, well, I'm gonna have both, you know. <laughs> exactly, we're gonna have both. So I spent six months there, and you know made a living shaping, eked out a little bit of shaping, started doing some production shaping down there. It was was in the infancy surfing was building yeah. and. And that's where that's how I got to Brazil. So, and did they did, did when you were in Brazil shaping? Were they like, oh man, this guy from California knows what he's doing? And were people like, like looking to you as like a leader in the surfboard building manufacturing arena there? Or not yet. It was it's like I, I I got introduced to Saquarema where they have the CT now, mm-hmm. and I I went okay, this is insane. I, this is my spot. This is, I want to be here. This is where I want to live. This is what I was looking for. Cause every day there's waves, you know, some, and you don't have to drive and, you know, it's warm, pretty warm, pretty nice. And, um, so my friend that, that I, that met there, um, he had been to Hawaii. He built some boards. He had a planer. So we, we made a couple boards there and tried to sell them. And then he took me into town and introduced me to the guy who made foam, Colonel Pajeras, who made Clark foam. Oh, Grubby Clark. And um, he was the, the, the manufacturer at the time. Which so he, Grubby gave him the recipe? Yeah. Uh-huh. The licensee of, uh, I guess, Grubby met him when his motorcycle adventures down there. But he... He made the foam, and um, and I had met uh, this guy named Tito Rosenberg. It used to glass at Gordon and Smith. Oh, and he was from Rio, and he was down there making boards. I couldn't, I couldn't really find him. You know, I went to find him, and you know, he was never there. And yeah, um, and and so the uh, Colonel Pajeras, I got to sign him GL. You know, in and and Tito came and Tito was looking for a shaper because he was a killer glasser, but not a good, really good shaper. And um, and the colonel told him, he goes, yeah, well, that's glass light. Because <laughs> he didn't want to take me away from that. But, but I, you know, I come in and do two boards every two weeks or something, you know, just to 
get my 10, 20 bucks and be able to live the rest of the month. You know, so right. I wasn't mass producing, but that was where it was started. And then Tito started, I, Tito found me and I started working for him and doing a little bit more. But then after six months, I had to leave. So my goal was to come back, make some money and then come back and, you know, do my own thing. Well, at some point in your career, you were heavily influenced by a guy who's who's influenced almost everybody, and that's Dick Brewer. Tell me about your relationship with Dick. How did it start and um, so forth and so on? Well, I was really fortunate um, after going back a little bit. I came back. I worked in the U.S. I, I was a dishwasher, bar, bartender, met my wife to be got married went back to brazil lived for two years and you know did production shaping i was doing four or five boards a day you know four or five days a week and really honed my skills as being able to use a power planer um my wife became pregnant we ended up in ecuador i shaped 100 balsa wood boards to pay for my first daughter so i did production balsa wood shaping i was doing three or four balsa wood boards a day radical <laughs> it's crazy You're grinding yeah we grind it I, I don't know how i did it you know yeah. but, uh so i and then I came back to the u.s and i was living in claremont my parents house and what a, a rental that my parents had and there was this guy uh bobby piercy was a, a pro skater and he rode yeah. for Brewer skateboards and he would have been a little grom down at pb when i was when i was younger you know yeah and he came over he was dating this hot chick that lived around the corner from me and and she said oh do you know gary Linden?" he's right over there oh i know gary and he comes over and uh greg albertini was going to start a brewer surfboard factory was in oceanside and i got the job manager job oh and i told him i told albertini i'm going i'll set this factory up but I got to, I'm one of the shapers or else I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So reluctantly, you know, he thought I wasn't going to make it or anything else, but I, I uh, ran Ramrod over RB occasionally, Sam Rock, <laughs> Al and Joe Blair and oh. Rasmussen. Those were the guys I had to, those are my shapers. Oh my God. Talk, there's a lot of egos in the room there. Dude, believe it. You That's know? an incredible lineup. And and I, I had to, like, who's this guy? You know, I had to prove myself to those oh, guys. Yeah. And then I was their boss. Right. And we had two two adjoining shaping rooms. And I had one, and the other was kind of the guest room. And RB would come over, and he'd shape in that one. And he wasn't at his greatest point in his career. Yeah. Having some problems there. In the, in what, the, what years are we talking now? Like 74? 78. That 78. was 78. Okay. And, and, and so, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't yeah. putting out yeah. top quality stuff at that point, you know, yeah. probably the worst time of his, his life. Yeah. And uh, so he'd shape some board, a couple boards, and I figured, well, I got to, I got to, I got to show this guy, man. So I'd shape five. He'd do two and I'd do five. Yeah. And he'd come in and ask me, well, what do you take a look at this one? I go, yeah, it looks pretty good, but you know, Dick, the right rail is a lot thicker than the left rail. Now I wasn't, I wasn't backing down going, Oh, you know, yeah. 
Dave Brewer, I was, yeah. this is, well, this is you and me, buddy, you know, it's yeah. real. And, and we really established kind of a, really some mutual respect mutual respect and something i will always treasure because from that point dick always did his best work when he was there oh that's cool always did his best work you know he really dug down there and then he would confide you know he would confide in me you know he'd go well make me a make me a quad make me a four fin because my my four fins and my fours and my twin fins and those were really there were we were winning all Dave Barr, Joey Moran, yeah. all the got top guys. And I'm breezy. They were winning all the contests on my boards. And he, he was going, what are you doing? Yeah. So, I, okay. Well, let, me, let me ask you real quick about the, the, these guys. So, like when you think about it, it's pretty amazing, right? Sam, um, Sam Hawk. Um, Al. Al Chapman. Ricky his Rattles. brother. Was his brother too? Was it Al's brother too? Or no. Al yeah. Sam, Ricky Masmussen, Albertini. Yeah. 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 So you which one of those guys was the biggest? Well, without throwing anyone under the bus, who was the most difficult to work with? Albertini by far. Yeah. Yeah. He he was really uh, yeah, he was the owner, you know. He didn't yeah. shave, he just come in just right, just try and really round, you know, it's always coming in. Linda, I'm gonna kick your ass. Are you making, you know, because He'd get mad at Blair because Joe Blair was always trying to pull these things, you know. <laughs> you know Joe. I know Joe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Joe, by, just while we're, for the record, Joe is the greatest guy. Man. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. For he, sure. he taught me more than anybody else, you know. He's still like you, still making good, great surfboards. Yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe's, you know. But Albertini would always go, are you making any bootleg brewers? I'm going to kick your ass. And, and you're just going, you know, call me on Thanksgiving. I'm going to kick your ass, Lyndon, all, all the time. All oh the God. time. You know, and I had to deal with that. And, you know, it was pretty, yeah. pretty gnarly. But going, so going back to Brewer, you, you guys had this, uh, this really great mutual respect thing going. And he, and he was now doing his best work because he was like, this guy is actually holding me to my own sort of high standard here. Yeah. That's kind of a unique position. I'm sure everyone else, as you say, a lot of people are like, okay, Mr. Brewer, whatever you say. Yeah. You know, and it just, I got to run this place, Dick, you know, I mean, you know, I, I respect who you are and you, you're the greatest shaper of all time, just about in my opinion, but we got to work together, you know, yeah. so, and, and it, like in the, the last time he came and shaped, which is, you know, not too, too long ago, maybe 10 years ago or so. I don't know, but, but uh, he'd shape and boards and I'd look at, I'd be, I'd have to go over him, you know, and he'd just get pissed, you know, it's like come in and just go, what are you doing? I'm going, dear. (laughs) I go, RB, I'm not changing the shape. I'm just your detail, man. You know, cause they'd had to be, tinted yeah and he goes wow jack's probably been doing this for the last 20 years <laughs> jack reeves. reeves yeah right which he had and, and it's funny because you don't you don't uh jeff prindle was glassing me for for me for at, at one point you know yeah 
and and he and he did the same thing to me. He was already control. Classes. He just goes, put these things on, you know. And I'm like, your eyes start getting bad. You stop seeing. You go, you go. You think it's all good. It feels all good. There's all these scratches that you didn't get out. And great if it's a clear, but if it's a tint, yeah, gotta get it together. You know. Yeah. So it was funny. You know, um, excuse me. The um, you know, you you mentioned being the manager of a surfboard factory, and uh, if if I can push it forward a little bit, I spoke with somebody recently that's in the surfboard manufacturing industry here in Southern California, and he suggested that that California surfboard building is coming up on a and in the middle of and and continuing to be in a kind of a sketchy place and he mentioned two things one is a shortage of labor of qualified labor and the second is the cost of real estate and as you know gary um the guys on out in oceanside on airport road for the listeners that don't know there's probably i don't know 15 to 20 surfboard manufacturers out there they're all being wiped off the map uh, as they regentrify and uh, build a new development out there. So what are your thoughts on, on this? Do, do you sense that California surfboard manufacturing is going through a crisis based on quality labor and real estate? Well, regarding the real estate, I mean, I was at uh, 1027 South Cleveland blocked from the beach from 1978 till two years ago. And I had to stop manufacturing probably 20 years ago or something like that there. So I got pushed out. I was lucky enough to be able to, my business was able to stay here and, you know, glass out of the, in the Valley, but I didn't have to move out there. Um, you know, as real estate gets more expensive out there, there you got to move someplace else. But I mean, there's places in California you are always going to be able to, you know, Santee or, you know, Jamecula or you know wherever there's always going to be some land as far as real yeah. estate goes that's yeah it's it's going to get more difficult but the real problem I think is always been the cost of um, manufacturing versus the cost of what you can sell it for yeah and I actually think that that is increasing I think uh, that it's getting better I, I think if I could make surfboards nowadays I could actually make a living at it right there's a good margin. Margins are better. Yeah. It, it used to be, I mean, it used to be there was one price for a surfboard and, and that's yeah. what it was. But now there's all these different markets, you know? Yeah. Like you can go to the upscale market, which is where the, you know, you, you can double your money. And people don't, don't even think twice. And then there's a, you know, the clear sanded finish and you can't, you if you have a good marketing and you spend a lot on the best team riders in the world, you can make money at that end too. Yeah. And doing volume like channel islands or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think actually, you know, it's, it's better. And you talk about skilled labor. We couldn't shape more than a hundred boards a week. You ask Al, you ask Rusty, you know, you're going to put your name on it. You're not going to shape, a hundred boards a week. So how are you going to get it done? You're going to get five ghost shapers. And then at the end, after you do your four or five that day, you got to go over another 20. Yeah. 
and, and make sure they're up to speed or close. Now with computer shaping, you you know, you don't even have to go over it. Yeah. It's done. It's pretty good. So I think. But what about sanders and laminators? Do you, do you sense that, like when you look out at, say, like Jeff's place out in Oceanside or <clears throat> Chris Christensen's, these guys are like 50, 60, 70 years old that are laminating surfboards. Is there somebody filling those shoes? Do you see, do you see people filling in the gaps as this, as we move along? Well, I, you know, I, I, I basically can only speak for the shapers because that's where yeah. it starts. Right. But, you know, I had the feeling that nobody was even learning to shape anymore. Yeah. And, the, and the last boardroom I went over, I, I don't usually watch all the, any of it, but I went over when Ryan Birch was shaping and using the planer. And after he finished, he go, I go, dude, that's, that's as good as anybody I've ever seen anybody use a planer. Yeah. Myself included. Yeah. And, and I go, I didn't think you guys knew, even knew how to use them. And he goes, well, we're just following in your footsteps, you know, which was really a, a, a great thing, you know, touch my heart to hear that but um i think there is a resurgence and i think there's always going to be somebody I, that made me believe that the the craft is not going to die yeah. and it's not going to be high volume which yeah. i don't think it should be you know because I, I i i i think it's a terrible way to make a living you know i don't think it's healthy i don't think um i think use your brain go to school don't quit school you know don't try and do it but and it, and there's going to be you know better technology uh but i think there's going to always be people that are gonna want to do it because it i still do it yeah. even though, you know i love I, I love it you know yeah it, it, it's very very uh enjoyable thing if you don't have to make a living at it yeah you know it's an art it's an art what about you and the computer how comfortable are you? Do you even have computer programs? Oh, shoot, I've been. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, well, fill me in. My history with computers is pretty, pretty long. I, I went to, when I was in France the first time in 71, um, Diff was shaping for Barlon. Yeah. And at that time, and I used to go watch Diff shape. And I got a Barlon surfboard and became friends with the family. Yeah. And I went back in 1984 and saw the first computer shaping machine that Bar uh, Monsieur Barlon uh, invented. Wow. And I came four. 84. And I came back and I told uh, Tony Channon and, and, um, and, and uh, Bill Bain of what I saw. And they had, you know, they got this guy to invest and they made KKL, the yeah. computer shaping service. Yeah. They weren't, they didn't have enough customers. So I called Al Merrick and I go, Al, I've been, I've been using this computer shaping machine. It's so killer. You got to try it. Shoot myself in both feet. <laughs> Tell all your competition about the good news, Gary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been computer shaping since then. Wow. So, but do I operate the, the, the programs and everything? No. I mean, do you, do you open up the, the um what is it a uh, uh the shape 3d yeah whatever one it doesn't matter whichever one do you open those up and use the software 
I, I don't use a software. I always have somebody help me do it. Right. Dave Barr's been helping me for, for the yeah. last couple of years. Yeah, Dave's got it figured out pretty good. I know there's a guy who builds Taylor Knox's boards, Chris Borst, who you probably know. Uh-huh. And um, I understand that he's so far advanced that he he can punch out a board and just sign it. Like, doesn't even have to take a screen to it. Well, he owns the machine. Yeah. So he, he so you can do that. It's just, is it cost effective? For him, it's probably cost cost effective because he can slow the the cuts down so that they're really really tight right but but if i'm going to charge you thirty dollars for a cut yeah i'm going to do it faster so you're going to have to make up the difference barlon was um was so far advanced in that stuff they know he he invented the computer mixing uh he used to make clark foam he was a friend of grubby he in, invented the computer mixing of the uh, chemicals uh-huh. for clark that, and he had designed a board where you could computer cut the board you could laminate it and then sand it all by computer really that's fascinating so all of it can be done yeah it's just a matter of setting it up, setting up a factory to do it. Is there enough margin right. to or return on investment? Right. And there hasn't been. So yeah. for Chris, yeah, I don't want to get dirty. I'm going to do this perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Boom. But cool. how much would he charge me to do that? I don't know. Yeah. If you said 200 bucks, I would go, "Mm, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I can only sell the board for 300 or whatever, you know. Tell me about foam. You mentioned foam. Um, I've recently, I've tried really hard to to ride EPS foam, uh, expanded polystyrene foam blanks. And I just haven't been able to, they just don't surf the way I like the board to react. Um, there's something about a polyurethane foam blank, and I think it's what I like to call, and I've, I think Dave Parmenter used this phrase, and it makes so much sense to me, which is a polyurethane seems to have a dampening effect. Um, and I've tried, interestingly, the extruded polystyrene, which is the XTR foam and the stuff that the guys at Patagonia are using. And I actually don't mind that foam I kind of like. But the EPS foam, I'm having an issue with, just me personally, I'm not saying there's anything wrong or bad with it. What are your thoughts? What do you like to ride? I'm sure you probably like to ride agave, wood, or not wood, agave or whatever. Tell me about your experience with EPS and these other foams, and what's your favorite? Okay, well, the, the history goes back. I used to shape in Japan, like, for 14 years. I went there three or four times a, times a year, and they, uh, there was a guy over there making windsurfers, and he called this foam uh, X-tune or cross-tune. And that was expanded, uh, no, extruded polystyrene made by Dow Chemical. Yeah, that's the stuff that Javier uses at XTR. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, yeah. So it took, um, it, it's, it was blueboard, was insulation foam. And, it, and this one guy that worked at Dow over there got him to make it white. And, but the only problem is the volume of one day's production would fill Tokyo Dome. So, so he, he couldn't fill up, make all his windsurfers. 
So when I was over there, they gave me one and I, and I shaped it and I came back and first turn at Swami's, I went, this stuff is insane. I love this. So I started bringing containers over of, of Crosstune. And then what, what did Grubby say? Grubby well, must have been pissed. That's why we got, I got canceled. Yeah. I got, I, that's a whole nother story, but you know. We're going to have to go there in a minute, but continue on with Japan and you're okay. surfing at Swami's and you like this board. So I loved it. You know, it's all I wanted to ride. It just had this great feel. Like it had this spring and response. And by the way, I, I hate EPS. It's just like you. I can't ride it. There's yeah. no momentum to it. Exactly. It doesn't matter whether it's a short board, a, a long board, or a gun. None of them work to, to how I, I wanted to say. And, the, and Harold Walker told me, he goes, it's probably because that all the weight is in the skin okay. and there's, there's no direction down the middle, it, but we can talk about it later, but that's an yeah. interesting concept. It rides. Okay. Once you get it going, but it stalls at the top, it, it doesn't have any forward momentum, but anyway, so I, I brought that stuff back. This guy, Pedro came up from Peru as Javier's cousin and he wanted to start SVF. And I made it, I was buying it for 30 in Japan, getting a container and selling it for 75. Stretch was one of my customers, Gordon Smith was doing windsurfers. I had a nice business. And Pedro comes in and he wants to compete with Clark Phone. So a Clark Phone blank at that time was like about $38 and he was gonna charge 40. And I go, Pedro, it's a different clientele. You're not gonna. You're not gonna have the same customer base at Clark Foam. I don't care if you sell it for seventy-five, and I don't care. I don't need the business, but don't kill it. Yeah. But about a year later, he was out of business. Yeah. You know, because he sold it for cheap, so cheap. And then Javier came over and, and called it uh, XTR. Yeah. And and he's done well with it. Javier's did a good. You know, he, it's yeah. a niche market but great boards, but I, I like it. And I, maybe it's something because that those are uh, closed cells, just like poly, polyurethane. Yeah. And whether the other EPS is like beads, little beads that are, that, so they're not really ever connected. Yeah. And I, and I don't know the difference of what it is, but it, there's something about the transmission of energy when it flexes, it doesn't, yeah yeah it's static it's stasis it's it's like you say you stand up on the board and it doesn't go it doesn't go and if you stop paddling one paddle too early it stops brakes go on yeah anyway i've i've just been riding one recently and i just i've been trying so hard to enjoy it and i just i've just decided i'm not going to ever go there again i've learned my lesson too many times you know um but it's interesting this idea that um, because they're kind of separated, the EPS, the, the little balls, right? They're not connected. Um, and I love Javier's foam. I've had two of his boards and they both were incredible. Um, tell me this Clark story. So you got canceled by Clark. You're one of the few or many that got basically told to take a hike. It must not have been a pretty, pretty experience. 
Yeah, it was it was kind of brutal, you know, because I had long history with with Grubby, and you know, I was I was instrumental in getting the ultralight blanks blown. You know, he 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 made these blanks, and he and he then he wanted to stop doing it, and he, he called me up and he goes, I get, I went up and met with him, and he goes, uh, you know, I can't make your ultralight blanks for you anymore. And I go, how come? And he goes, well, there's too many seconds. I go. Well, keep making them all by all the seconds because when you don't put the quantity of material in the in the in the mix it has a tendency not to fill out the mold so you get problems so it's the lighter you blow a blank the harder it is to make mm. you know so you know i thought oh yeah we're buddies and everything and he used to give you a discount on your ads if you put the clark foam logo in yeah so I started putting my balsa flight logo and my, my cross tune logo. And he's just, and, the, and then what I used to. What work, year was this? Like 82 or something? I don't know. It was, it was after that. It was, it was a night. It, it was the end of the eighties probably or early nineties. Cause we were computer cutting boards. Cause I, I'd order a batch of foam, get it sent to KKL it'd get delivered and you know then i go shape somewhere in the world you know and come yeah. back and i remember coming back from my trip one of my trips and my phone wasn't there and i'm going what happened you know uh -oh. and i called up there and i go well you were um you were past due on your account uh like i think it was 25 dollars, or maybe it was two <laughs> Maybe it was two dollars and fifty cents, you know. Yeah. And but he'd canceled me, so. Uh, and, and by that time, I'd started using Walker Foam too. Donald Donald had uh, given me a, a Walker Foam blank, and I, yeah, it's, it serves better. I like it better, and it doesn't delaminate and everything. So I was getting a little bit of everything, and then he canceled me, and so I, I started using Walker Foam. But it was just like when he went out of business. He didn't take people, anybody else into consideration. It was like, boom, you're, this is business, son. You know, yeah. this is the play, you know. And did you call there or did, did you talk to Matt Bar, uh, Matt Bar, or did you talk to anyone there, Matthew? Or like, how did you find out? It couldn't have just been, I owe him $2.50. Yeah, no, I had to call up. Yeah, that's why I called up and found out. I, I don't remember if Dick Morales was still, um, I think Dick was still managing the, the yeah. In fact, and he was a great guy, you know, yeah, yeah. but I probably end up talking to the secretary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you've been using other stuff ever since. Yeah. I used a Clark Blank ever since then. I think I saw Clark Bank at your factory, at your place though, before well, at a, Cleveland street, before you left. I have a pretty darn co good collection because I, I got some, a couple Clark phone blanks. I have, I have a collection of what happened after Clark quit. So I went up and became general manager Walker and there was just foam was just getting started. There was Safari was my biggest comp competition for imports. So I got a just foam blank. I got a Safari. I got some walkers. I got a Clark just so, so if comparison is a history of that time. Oh, interesting. That's, that's cool. Um, well, I guess I want to know what, what's been like, you've had such a long, I mean, we haven't even talked about your big wave stuff. I mean, you've, you've ridden, what's the biggest wave you've ridden? 65 feet, maybe. Uh, 
Well, I don't know. The biggest wave I ever rode was up for biggest wave of the year in 2002. And I think that was probably 55, something like that. But it, right. but it, uh, the picture didn't, I didn't get it in the takeoff. I got it at the end of the ride and I didn't win. Yeah. So, uh, so you're 55 years old on a 55 foot wave. Yeah. That's crazy. 60 foot, 60 foot pretty darn big, man. For to paddle in. Oh I, my lord. I think there's very few 60 to 65 foot waves been ever paddled into. Maybe uh maybe Twiggy at at uh Mavericks. At Jaws. Oh at Jaws, yeah. Yeah, maybe um this year um Lucas Chianca at Nazare paddling a pretty big one but um it gets to that point it's just so hard to judge right I mean it's some after I don't know let's just say 50 feet it's like dude you're at a realm where it's just it's it's so much water surging up the face because of maybe some back like at the peak moment you know, it could be a 40 foot wave, but at the peak, it might've been 70 for just, but for three seconds, you know, or whatever. I, well, I think the speed, I, I think that, you know, 50 foot wave is 25 foot Hawaiian, you know, that's what, yeah. so 25 foot wave is, you know, even the old guys, well, that's, that's the threshold. Yeah. I think I've caught maybe a handful of waves that big. Yeah. Amazing. But um, 60 foot, getting up the speed the paddling speed because it's the only way you're going to really do that is turn and burn you know just flip it you're not going to be able to and flipping it on a way that's going that fast is pretty pretty crazy you know yeah in a weird way you need a smaller board to do the flip you know but you can't i know that's what it's like there's this there's this area of no return yeah so brock little Caught a pretty big wave one 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 year that was pushing sixty feet at, at Waimea. Yeah, There's a few cases, you know, maybe Greg Knoll's wave was sixty foot at that you know, the one we'll never see. Makaha. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I did. That it, wave was seventy feet. <laughs> Let's get it clear. <laughs> no, I'm guaranteeing it was seventy feet. Uh, uh, tell me, you know, Mavericks. Tell me about the world tour. You were involved with it for a while. Um, I don't believe you're involved with it anymore. I just was looking this morning. There's two events on the big wave world tour, the Nazare toe surfing event and the jaws event. Do you think that's enough? Do you think that the big wave surfers are getting their just uh, due? And do you think that it's engaging from an end user standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, your average surfer that's out at pipes and Encinitas, does he care about a big wave world tour? Well, I created the Big Wave World Tour and ran it without the World Surf League for five years. We crowned five world champions and we had um, eight events on tour. Yeah. And um, then I, I, I gave it to the World Surf League because I, I thought that they would take it to the next level where I couldn't take it because I basically financed it on what I was able to make making surfboards, which... I laugh. Most people can't even eat on. Yeah. And uh, so it was, you know, it was just uh, a lot of love and, and support from the surfers and the event organizers. But what happened was um, 
when the World Surf League took it over, they, they uh, tried to blow it up too big and they, they made it unsustainable. They, we, we spent about 70 to 100 grand doing it with the broadcast and everything in the end and with prize money. And I was able to find sponsorship up to that level. You know, I, I had a tour sponsor at one point, you know, putting 50 grand a, an event, but they immediately started spending 700,000 on an event and nobody would, would sponsor it, you know, then yeah. the, the, so they just gradually, there is no world tour anymore. There's two events, but they're not, there's no world tour. And no, I don't think it's enough. I, I think it's uh, ludicrous that, that, that um, and it's very hurtful for me because it was a baby that I created and, and I passed it over so it would be sustainable and now it's dead, which yeah. is really hurtful for me. And I, I think is as far as um, how it impacts the rest of surfing, I think it is just like it always been. It is the t- highest level you can take surfing to, you know, it's, it's not, and it's something that maybe not everybody can do or is really interested in, but everybody that you talk to, that's, they feel, that's the most exciting thing that I've seen. That's how can you do that? It's the most man against nature. It's like, why is UFC popular? Because it's, you know, people are coming close to death when they fight. And we, you know, the Rome and all that stuff, people want to see the ultimate challenge, you know, and surfing, you know, you don't think, well, I'm going to die if I go surf Oceanside Boulevard, you know, but if you're going to go surf Jaws, yeah, there's a chance, you know, and and people, people are interested in, in, you know, challenging the, you know, the most human challenge you can, you take. It's most exciting watching big waves. It's, it's, it's incredible. And the, and the guys that do it now, um, the goal for me was that big wave riding had always been something that was more of a mature sport. You know, like somebody that w- was able to <clears throat> afford to chase a swell, afford to have two big boards, afford to have, be able to pay a boat to take you out to Totos, whatever, afford to. There was no 15-year-old kids doing it. Right. You, you couldn't do right. it. There was no 25-year-old kids doing it. Yeah. We weren't really seeing what an athlete was capable of doing at its peak. So I, I thought, well, we need a career path. Where's a career path for Greg Long? You know, he was a 14 year old world longboard champion, but which I tease him about. (laughs) He he also won the, um, he won the NSSA men's open as probably an 18 year old. Yeah. But, but there was no, you know, he's a big hitter. Where are you going to go? You know? And, and when, but he came down as running, uh, Red Bull Big Wave Africa, and he came down as an invitee, and it's just, man, this this is working, man. Here's this kid, dude, and he charges. I mean, he was an alternate, and I pulled one of the guys out and put him in. (laughs) 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 
and and then we start and we see Lucas Chianka. You know, I watch him. You know, we see Anthony Tasnick and Luca Padua now, and all these kids. You know, I want to be a big way charger. You know, I'm going to go work with Laird Hamilton, and I'm going to buff up and learn how to do this, and I'm going to I'm going to do it right. You know, yeah. And, and that I, I think it's unfortunate that we don't have a venue for these guys. Yeah. What about um, the Mavericks event? I, I understand that there's a person that's got a permit pulled and is ready to run the event. How, how do you feel about that? And maybe you're involved in it in some way. I don't even know. Um, I've only heard, you know, snippets. And I think it's a, a woman that's, uh, it's, you know, uh, doesn't have any um, experience. So I think it's going to be an uproad battle for yeah. her I, I wish her all the luck i mean yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, i think there's going to be a, a return of Toto santos here uh, really yeah. you got something brewing do you oh good okay cool and so in in five years where do we see big wave competitive surfing well i heard i hope it has a resurgence and and um, i think it has to start over like i did it before you know, individual events proving that they're sustainable and then linking together to to crown a champion and 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 i i see that um uh you know you know the wsl coming back in and and just uh sponsoring the world championship at, at jaws because you know jaws is the most phenomenal big wave that i've ever written you know yeah. it Nazareth, uh I would like to see a paddle event at Nazareth again because that was in incredible. Oh my god, Nazareth is almost too dangerous. Uh, right? I mean, it's almost more dangerous for the ski drivers than it is for the surfers. Well, that's what I was going to say. It, it's more dangerous at the level that you do like like towing because there's too many skis out there. Yeah, and there and it's just it's. It's okay. No, it's okay on a free surf level because they're coordinating and working together. When you start to compete, put the put the put the competition thing in, and if people are making bad decisions, people are forcing the issue. It's 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 a different level. When a paddle, you're not going to get it. You're going to go on a day that's not as big yeah. as you can get. Yeah, and it's dangerous. Yeah, but we ran a couple of events. There was good. But regardless, you know, do whatever you want. I, I'm just yeah. saying it was that yeah. was exciting and people would like it. But I would like to see, you know, the 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 uh, the events at Pico Alto was a great event. Punta de Lobos was a great event. Todos was a good one. Puerto was a good one. Yeah. Punta Galea is still running. It's a good one. There's plenty of spots in Spain, there's spots in Australia. You know, there's there's spots all over, and I envision. Uh, big wave surfing as a tiered thing because big wave surfing for me is riding the best biggest wave that's available whether it's two foot La Jolla shores I'm going to sit outside and that one three footer that comes through <laughs> I'm on it you know that's my big wave and you just take that to another level so there can be an A, B and C level to it yeah. like you go sea level is Italy or something. It, it maybe it gets ten foot. That's the biggest thing. But 
So you qualify on the, on the C level tour and you go to the B level tour and then you go to the A level tour, which is, which is John's, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that'll happen ever mm-hmm. in lifetime, but I think it's viable to get the individual events up and yeah. running, get Mavericks up there, killer event. Nell Scott Reeve, killer event. You know, there's good waves. We, we get one at YMA, get one, you know, wherever, wherever it's um, viable for the locals. So you've got, you've got Todos kind of, you know, I know you, it sounds like you want to keep it kind of under wraps, but you're saying there's some possibility that you're going to start the Todos event up again. Yeah. yeah. And that's not, just going to be a one-off. It's not going to be the kickstart to something else that you're doing. No, I, I just, at, at this point in my career and having done a tour and everything else, that's just too much for me. Yeah. just want to have something at Toto's. This is my, my break that I love and, yeah. you know, place that I love and people I love and, you yeah. know, just give a chance, you know, for the Mexican surfers. And sure. There's some cool. kids that are starting to charge. I believe it. The yeah. Mexican kids that are going for it. And it's so stoked because, you know, they don't have any outlet, you know, where, where yeah. are they going to go? There's nothing. Yeah. You got this beautiful wave down there and, you know, just, just, you know, just keep it going. It, like I, I want to have something that's, I don't have to have a, you know, the best surfers in the world. I just have to have, or the best wave or anything, just to have a, have an event, you know, have a good event. Let me ask you this. We, We've had a great chat here this morning, you and I, and I always enjoy talking to you. you you've got great stories. I don't even feel like we've touched on. <laughs> I know last time we spoke, you, we went in a totally different direction. Yeah. But um, if somebody wanted to order a custom surfboard from you, how would they get a hold of you? Um, best way to go is just uh, to give me a call. Or, you know, is there a website, Garrett? I've got a website. <laughs> lindensurfboards.com i don't check it all the time okay know? but they can get your email there though right my email yeah, yeah. you don't check that email though but um are you building a lot of agave boards well yeah that's that's kind of what i wanted to talk to you a little bit yeah, right? yeah, yeah please yeah so, so i i've been building agave boards but for more than uh you know 20 years and stuff and they've been varying on some people who could ride them they're all they're all anatomically correct but but they're more of an art piece. Yeah. But um, I've got a source of, of blanks now. Uh, and they're absolutely insane. Really? They're why, in- why are they better than before? Because they're being built uh, on a 33,000 acre farm. Mm-hmm. That, 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 so that, that there's a million stocks. Right. That, so you could sort through it and make, is it about the way you lay them up? What's that? Is it? Does a lot of the quality depend upon you, Gary, laying them up correctly? Or no, no, no. The the quality depends on resource. Yeah. So I'm going to have to go source these stocks. You know, I'm going to ask them, the neighbor if I can go in the backyard and and risk getting bit by their dog and you know <laughs> getting you know getting getting a, a six or seven stocks and then I'm going to use those to make a board and that and that means some of them might be too soft and some might be too hard some might have crack and some might not be but i'm gonna build a, a board yeah but 
if I've got a million poles to select for, I'm going to only pick the one that are this dry. I, I, I'm doing 20 of them right now that I got and uh, I'm able to get them cut on the machine. Uh, they're really? consistent weight. They, uh, they ver uh, they're all, I, I'm doing this 20 of the same shape and the weight varies like six ounces between, between all the variety, the density, all this relative density. They're riders. You, you and I spoke earlier about foam. How, how does this agave, because it's not a wood, right? Describe to the listener what you would, how would you categorize or characterize agave blanks? It's an agave board. You've got to think of it as more like a, a water conductor, like a straw, like a, so it, the, the, the agave plant is a desert plant. And so the moisture is funneled down from the leaves to the, to the root and the heart. And that shoots the water up to the flowers, which is the top of the stalk, which I made the board out of. So it's a very, very porous material with a strong um, bark, it's like, so shell. Mm -hmm. So it's like a straw. So it's, it's very, um, it's held together with these strands so that, so the grain is actually fibers. So for me, it's the ideal surfboard material. Balsa wood is too hard. It's like the three little bears. You know, one bed's too soft, one bed's too hard, one's just right. Balsa wood's too hard. So to get it to curve and you're shaping it, you're just constantly taking a line up. You know, it's, it's like a little plane, plane line, plane line. Foam's too soft. It's mushes. You know, you can't, you can't cut a good line. And agave's right in there between for shaping. And then the flex is the same. Balsa's too stiff, doesn't flex at all. Foam's too flexible. It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't. You need a stringer. But it still, it dissipates the, 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 the speed. So Dampening. for a longboard or a gun, the energy's dissipated. So it's, if you paddle a longboard, foam longboard, you paddle it through a wave and you go on the other side, it's like that. It, you imagine when you're dropping into a big wave and you're on a foam board. It's going, you hit a little chop and boom. How light can you make me an agave board? If I want like a light, like say <clears throat> six and a half pounds, seven pounds short board, like a little fishy thing. Easy. Does the, what's Easy. the right weight in your opinion? What's too light? Because I've had boards that are too light. Well, for, for a short board, pro board. Say for a fish, like for me, for a fish, I want a light little fish that that's that zips around. Do you know what weight yours is? The one that's too light, you mean? No, that that you that you like. Weight? I don't. I would suggest to you. I really, I'm kind of a. I've never. I don't know the exact weight, but I like really light, but without being too light. So I'm going to say I think six pounds would be good. Six pounds is pretty, is I, what, what length? 5'11", 20 and 21 inches wide, let's say. I think that's doable. Two and five eighths. Yeah, I think that's doable. I want to tell you a real quick story yeah. about weight. Yeah. So, so I'm working with Harold Walker, you know, and I've, I've been managing the phone factory and it's a, it's a big deal by this time. 
and I'm going, Harold, I, I, need a, I need a lighter board. And he goes, how much you want it to weigh? And I go, no, you know, Harold, I just want it, I just want it lighter. I want, how much you want it to weigh, Gary? And I'm going, well, Harold, I, I don't want the ultralight one. I want a little bit lighter. And he goes, how much do you want it to get weigh, Gary? And he gives me this scale. <laughs> and he gave me the scale, you know? So now I weigh everything. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because unless I have some parameters, yeah. some days it's light feels heavy and some days heavy feels light. Yeah. It, it's really weird when you put it in that level. And if you're not, if you like Harold wasn't surfing anymore, but by the way, they told me Harold was a good surfer in his day. Oh, good. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Which I believe I it. Know. Yeah. You know, I just got told that a couple of days ago, but you, you have to know, you know, like, so I was going to say like a pro board, I know uh, five pounds, like a competitive pro board, five yeah. pounds. Yeah. So I know that the 610 blanks that I have shaped vary yeah. between six and a half pounds and six and three quarter pounds. So they that's vary. the agave? Uh-huh. And that's without glass or? or that's without glass. Right. So you figure if I, if I want to put two ounce bottom and a four ounce deck. Two ounces on the bottom? Yeah. That's all? I'm just sealing it. Okay. I'm going to break. All right. I love it. I love it. So I'm, I'm going to get you uh, an eight pound, six, 10. I want a six pound, five, 11. So uh, what I'm saying is, so you go lighter and then I have the ability now to go to the blank factory and go, okay, I don't want to use the really the strongest lightest wood i want to use the lightest wood because i want a really light board so i have i can so i got an ultralight agave i got a rate standard i want want an ultralight agave now if you want so can i order a board from you sure i want to i want a 511 fish here's here's the big question how long will it take well um not too long if you if you're not surprised <laughs> gary how long i'm gonna go with walker here how long will it take i'm gonna give you one more question though okay it it, it, it has to do with the price i can get it air freighted and get it to you in six weeks finished but it's more expensive because it's, it's gonna cost right. more right and it's gonna cost more than a regular board too yeah yeah probably twice as much for 1200 bucks more yeah more but i don't i don't don't have it all priced yeah 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 yeah. but roughly it's about going to be about twice the retail well i'm just i'm just talking hypothetically with you here i think it's fascinating i do want an agave surfboard come come up i want an agave fish come up and take a look what I got in my shaping room right now. I just got two eight fours cut and I've got 15 six tens cut. And you are not gonna believe like the weight on my eight, eight fours. Like they're light. They're, they're light, but so like why uh gave you the example 
of the five pound pro board. I can probably make a five pound pro board. Sweet. I, it, but as I go, but it's not going to hold up like a five pound pro board. It's not going to hold up whether you make it out of yeah. XPR I or right. you know, millennium foam or Arctic yeah. foam or whatever. It's not going to hold up. Yeah. But my eight four gun I can make strong and lighter than my eight four foam board. Yeah. As okay. you go longer, it the proportionately weight to strength. So I can put six ounce on the my eight four and it's not going to be any heavier than my foam board because I had to put a inch stringer in it to get it as strong, you know? Right, right. Exactly. So all right, well I'm gonna I'm gonna come up there. I know you're you you move, but you're um you're across from the JS people, right? Yeah, I'm at eight or three oh six Wisconsin. Okay. And if you want to get a board from me, probably the best thing to do is just call and leave a message on seven six zero seven two two eight nine five six, which is the phone number I've had for the last forty five years. Sweet. <laughs> give that give that number one more time because people want seven, order books. Seven six zero seven two two eight nine five six and leave right. a message because i probably won't answer it but that'll i'll call you back and give you my cell phone and then i'm going to come up there and visit i'm going to come say hi and take it, a look it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal to, to check these boards out and the fact that we're going to be making them i mean yeah. it's going to be, be producing agave boards for for use yeah I definitely would want to absolutely ride it. I've been fascinated by wood. I've told you this before. I've been fascinated by balsa. And, and, and a long time ago, Randy Rarick said, you know, wood is, he was big on woods, just the best, you know, woods the way to go. It's better than anything. And, um, and, you know, obviously agave is not wood, but it's just this new fascinating material that I'm, I'm intrigued by. You know what the greatest thing about it, and this has been one of the reasons I've been working on with it, this is all industrial waste. Right. And this, the, it's like a tequila factory or a farm? Tequila has another waste. Tequ when, the, when the tequila heart blooms, which is what they, they press and make the tequila out, that's when the plant matures. If you left that alone, it would make a stock. So the tequila process wastes all the leaves mm. from which I have, I want to make fabric. And ah. the, the sisal uh, factory, which uses the leaves fibers to make rope and mat and bags, wastes the stalks. So we're, we're, we're using the stalks, which are waste and, and creating a whole new industry and a whole new form of employment and, so this, they must be excited that you're buying their waste. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, the, it's, it's, it's beyond that. It's, it's uh, it, like I said, it's a 33-acre uh, farm, and it's creating a whole new industry for the workers and the people that, that are there. And it, that's it's cool. the fact that we're using our waste, that's, that's always been my, my thing, you know, from the recycler boards and, all, all the whole thing. I'll just take a look at your waste and, and make something killer out of it. Yeah. And don't throw it away. Yeah. All right. Well, Gary, we had a fruitful talk. 
We had a great talk. I really appreciate you being on the show. And um, I look forward to seeing you at the boardroom show. I'm going to come up and visit, obviously. And we're going to talk agave surfboards for me. Um, and uh, I'll get one for you for the show. I'm, I'm planning to put, that's what I'm going to put in my booth. Oh, killer. Okay, well, look, everyone needs to come to the boardroom international surfboard show. And this farm, this farm that grows this agave, is it in state or is it out of state? It's in Africa. Africa. So this truly is an international booth. Yeah. Gary Linden Surfboards booth is going to be international because we've got African resource here. Third world. That's insane. That's so cool. I'm psyched. Uh, Gary, thank you, buddy. Thanks for being on the show. And, and we'll chat soon. I, th- I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Hey, a quick FYI for any surfboard orders. Get a hold of Gary Linden at his Instagram page, Linden Surfboards.
When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.